Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. It's a holy night, isn't it? I feel it. It's, uh, we have two very holy nights in our Christian calendar, Christmas Eve and Good Friday. And I, I sense it. I feel like I am attempting to preach on holy ground tonight. And I believe the Holy Spirit will give me grace to do that. On this Good Friday, I want to back up to the beginning of our Lord's agony. That is, I want us to go to Gethsemane. Matthew 26, verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. After the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples left the upper room in the upper city of Jerusalem to return to Bethany. But Jesus will never reach the safety of Bethany. During the Passover meal in the upper room, Judas had slipped away. Now you need to understand no one suspected anything. None of the disciples, that is. Judas being the treasurer, they assumed that he was attending to some financial need, perhaps making a contribution for the care of the poor or something like that. Only Jesus knew what Judas was really doing. And now as Jesus and the 11 disciples leave the upper room, he begins to feel the pressure of what he alone knows is coming. After crossing the Kidron, Jesus, instead of going directly to Bethany, he decided that he wanted to pray in a place that was a favorite place for him to pray. He often prayed there with his disciples and that spot was the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane was, and still is, an olive grove on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives. Gethsemane means oil press. Certainly there was an oil press in that grove of olive trees to produce the precious olive oil. But it's an apt name for the place where our Lord begins his suffering and enters into his agony. Because it's in the place of the olive press, Gethsemane, that the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Christ, comes under enormous pressure. The anointed one himself enters into the olive press. As they arrive at the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus leaves 
eight of the disciples there at the entrance of the garden. He then chooses his three most intimate disciples, Peter, James, and John, and goes further into the garden. He then says to Peter, James, and John, he says, uh, I'm under a lot of pressure. I'm exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. You stay here. Stay here and stay awake with me. And then Jesus goes about a stone's throw deeper into Gethsemane and throws himself on the ground and begins to pray. The disciples have never seen Jesus like this. Never. Jesus has always been in control. He's always been calm and composed. They remember when they were all panicked in a life-threatening storm on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus was asleep in the back of the boat. And when they woke him up, Jesus was not panicked. He simply got up and said, peace be still. And there was a great calm. In Nazareth, when the people became upset with what Jesus was preaching and they took him to throw him off the edge of the cliff, Jesus never lost his composure. He simply passed through the midst of the crowd and went his way. When Jesus was confronting demons, he was always in control, calm and composed. But not now. Not in Gethsemane. He's saying things like, I am deeply distressed. I feel like I could die. Just stay with me. Just stay awake. And he goes and he begins to pray in agony. All right, so we've seen the Son of God in the storm, and he's calm and composed. But now the storm has moved inside the Son of God. The storm isn't out there. The storm is internal. When we talk about the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we learn in theology to speak of Jesus as having two wills. Two natures in one person. A divine will and a human will. A divine nature and a human nature. They are never conflated. They are never blended. They never become one thing. They're always two. Never conflated, but never separated. Jesus always possesses two wills. Two natures in one person. The great religious philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said this is the ultimate paradox. The paradox of the God-man. Fully God, fully human. Not half God, half human. Having a nature, a human nature and a human will like ours. At the same time, possessing the very nature and will of God. 
So that when we look at the life of Jesus, we encounter these paradoxes. The one who walks on water also sits weary by the well of Sychar. The one who is omniscient and knows the thoughts of men will also say, who touched me? And so you see this paradoxical play back and forth constantly in the two natures and the two wills of Christ. But the paradox of the dual natures of the Son of God is never more on display than here in Gethsemane. Mark tells us about it. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, this hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Do you see? You can, you can almost see the two natures. Jesus is saying things like, if it's possible, all things are possible. If it's possible, if, if it's possible, all things are possible. But if it's possible, let this hour pass. Take the cup away. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And both of those wills are within the Son of God. The human will that has the fight or flight instinct. Jesus knows what is coming. A betrayal, arrest, beating, condemnation, crucifixion. And he's trying to find a way out of that. Why? Because he's like you and me. The fight or flight instinct was so intense in the human will and nature of Jesus that Luke tells us he begins to sweat blood. He begins to sweat blood. There's a part of Jesus, there's a will, there's a, a nature in Jesus that perhaps wants to fight. Which, by the way, is what everybody wanted him to do. It's what his followers wanted him to do. Peter's ready to fight. The rest of the disciples are ready to fight. His followers are ready to fight. And there's a part of Jesus that is, in, that is inclined toward that, that, that instinct to fight back against this thing that's coming at him. Or there's a part that wants just to flee, just to escape. Just, all he has to do is just slip over the Mount of Olives and go into the Judean wilderness and start his own quiet, contemplative, separated community like the Essenes did at Qumran. There's a part of him that wants to either fight back or just escape. Let this hour pass him by and he can go and, and build his community in quiet solitude in the desert. But neither of these are the will of the Father. The will of the Father is that Jesus stay right there in Gethsemane and trust. And just trust.
Three times Jesus goes off and he prays the same way. Father, Abba, Abba. It's, it's one of only three times that Abba is in the New Testament. The other two are from Paul when he says in Romans and Galatians that the Spirit has come into us that we might also pray Abba, Father. But this is, his, this is the one appearance from Jesus where Jesus calls God Abba, which is unprecedented. It's an Aramaic term. It's, a ten, it's tender language. It's Papa. It's Daddy. Abba. All things are possible. There must be another way. Take the cup away. Let the hour pass. Yet, not my will, but your will be done. And then he comes back. And the three, that, the one that he, just, he just asked him to stay awake with him. Just to help him shoulder this immense burden that's come on him. And they've fallen asleep. It's so, he couldn't stay awake. Come on, pray. And then he goes back and prays, comes back, they're asleep. He goes and prays again, comes back a third time, they're, they're still asleep. The utter aloneness of the Son of God. No one, no one is sharing it with him. And then he hears voices. And then through the branches of the olive trees, he begins to see the flickering light of torches. The temple police have found out where he is. And they have arrived. Out of the shadows, suddenly, Judas appears. And he comes up to Jesus as he always would. Rabbi. And he greets Jesus with a kiss. And then Jesus is arrested. Peter tries to fight back. Jesus stops him. In a fracas, Peter has severed the ear of one of the servants of the high priest, a guy named Malchus. Peter wasn't trying to cut his ear off. He was trying to split his skull. He was trying to kill him. The guy moved quick enough that it only cut off his ear. Jesus heals the man. He tells Peter, no, no more of this, no. And then Jesus is bound and arrested and taken away. From now on, Jesus is not in control of his own fate. From now on, things are just going to happen to him. And all he can do is trust. I want to linger, though, a little longer here in Gethsemane. And I want us to think a little bit about his betrayer. Judas Iscariot. Why did he do it? There's more to the story than you think. And what, what gives us a clue to what's going on is this most infamous kiss in history. Betrayed by a kiss. Why the kiss? 
Somebody said, well, you know, Judas just sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He's in it for the money. I don't think it's that simple. If he's just in it for the money, say he's got the money. All he has to do is say, that's him right there. That's the one. Arrest him. And then Judas just slips away. Why this business with the kiss? Why is that the sign? I'll tell you why. Because Judas wants to remain a disciple. He's not so much trying to betray Jesus as he's trying to force Jesus to be the kind of Messiah he wants him to be. Judas wants to back Jesus into a corner so that at last he will employ the miracle powers that Judas knows well that he has to fight against the police, against the Roman soldiers, and bring liberation to Israel in the way that Judas thinks it should be done. He doesn't really want to betray Jesus. He wants to control Jesus. He wants Jesus to be the way he wants Jesus to be. And he's convinced if he can back him into the corner that finally Jesus will fight back. Use the same powers that he's seen to heal the sick and raise the dead and perform other miracles. He will use them in a fashion to fight. He wants to remain a disciple, but he wants, he believes in Jesus. But he wants Jesus to be the way he wants him to be. He hopes to, Rabbi, kiss him. And then when the fight starts, Judas will be right there at his side fighting with him. And he's back in with the disciples. But it all falls apart. His plan falls apart because Jesus will not fight. He just won't do it. His plan derails and Jesus, the, the, the fight begins, but no sooner does it begin than Jesus shuts it down. And Jesus is arrested, taken into custody. Judas though, somehow stays aware of the proceedings. He knows where Jesus is taken. Well, Judas has been there himself already that evening. So he returns secretly. And finally he realizes that Jesus has been condemned to death. What does he do? He does this. Matthew 27, verse 3. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus, he saw it, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented. What did Judas do? Did he repent? He repented. And brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests. The repentance is real. He's bringing, he's, he's bringing that money back. So he's no longer in it for the money because he's repented 
He's bearing the fruits of repentance. He's bringing the money back. He said, he's saying this to the priests. I have sinned. He's repented. He's bearing fruits of repentance. He's confessing his sin. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. What more do you want him to do? What do you want Judas to do? He's repented. He's, turned, he's returned the money. He's called what he's done a sin. He confesses his sin to the priests. But they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. Can you imagine someone like going to a priest to confess your greatest sin with a broken heart, with a penitent spirit? You confess your sin to a priest and the priest says, what do I care about that? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. Oh, this is such a terrible story. Now, I want to be clear. Judas did a terrible thing. He did a terrible thing. Trying to manipulate Jesus. Trying to control Jesus. And doing it for money. And he was a thief. He did steal from the treasury. We know all of these things about him. But we also know that at some point he repented, tried to return the money, tried to confess his sin to the people he would know to confess sins to. And they utterly failed him. And then he hanged himself. It's a terrible story. But must we believe that this was the end of the Judas story. George MacDonald did not. You know George MacDonald. 19th century Scottish pastor until they fired him. Preacher until they wouldn't let him preach anymore. Playwright, poet, novelist, theologian, mystic, C.S. Lewis called George MacDonald his spiritual master. David Bentley Hart, with probably a bit of hyperbole, describes George MacDonald as the greatest theologian in the history of the English language. Here's what George MacDonald has to say about this. But must we believe that Judas, who repented even to agony, who repented so that his high-priced life, self, soul became worthless in his eyes and met no mercy at his own hand, must we believe that he could find no mercy in God? I think when Judas fled from his hanged and fallen body, he fled to the tender help of Jesus and found it. I say not how. He was in a more hopeful condition now than during any moment of his past life for he had never repented before. But I believe that Jesus loved Judas even when he was kissing him 
with the traitor's kiss. And I believe that he was his savior still. I believe that too. I too believe that when Judas fled from his hanged and fallen body, he fled to the tender mercy of Jesus and found help. And like McDonald, I say not how. All right, I want us to, still, I want to go back to Gethsemane. I'm not done with Gethsemane. I want to go back to Gethsemane. But this time, I want John the evangelist to take us there. I want to go with John. Now, you know by now, if you've been reading the Bible very long, you know that you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke are alike, and John is the oddball. John is different. John, I mean, we, we call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptics because they're similar. John is different. All the way through, they're different. I could, I'm not going to spend time showing you all the differences, but they are many I will say this, for example, for example, there is no transfiguration in John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, transfiguration is the moment of the revelation of the true glory of Christ right in the middle of those three Gospels. And then everything changes after that. It's a climactic moment that then changes the rest of the story. There is no transfiguration in John because... The entire gospel is Jesus transfigured. In the opening prologue, John writes, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the disciples don't see the fullness of Jesus' glory until the transfiguration. And John, and John Jesus just shines in the glory of God throughout the entire gospel. And the difference between John and synoptics is never more clear than at Gethsemane. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in Gethsemane, Jesus is in agony. Jesus is wrestling with the will of God. Jesus is sweating blood. Jesus is asking for the cup to be removed. There is none of that in John. In John, there is only glory. This is Gethsemane transfigured. Let me just read it to you. Just read it. I'm going to read it without, first without comment. After Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to the place where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas brought a detachment of soldiers together with the police from the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward and asked them, whom are you looking for? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus replied, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they stepped back and fell to the ground. 
Again, he asked them, whom are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered them, I told you that I am. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. I did not lose a single one of those whom you gave to me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's slave, and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Huh. Completely different picture. No agony. No wrestling. No sweating blood. In John, you have not only the temple police, you have a Roman cohort. That's 600 soldiers. You have 600 Roman soldiers coming to arrest Jesus. Did Matthew, Mark, and Luke just forget that? It seems like, you know, a fairly significant detail that there were 600 Roman soldiers along with the temple police coming to arrest this one guy. And that when... They ask, and Jesus takes control. He, he steps forward and says, for whom are you seeking? Uh, let's see, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. I am. And they all fall to the ground. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I told you I am. Let these go. Peter begins to fight. Jesus stops him. And Jesus... You don't think, I, you think I'm not going to drink this cup? I'm going to drink this cup. Completely different. Jesus in John is completely calm and composed and in charge. Roman cohorts are falling to the ground. And you get the feeling he could have done that all night long. He could have just kept saying, I am, and they fall down. Finally, he says, okay, let's go. You can, I'll go with you. Now, first of all, let's get this out of the way. As a modern person, I know what your problem is. You go, well, which was it? You, you want to know, is it Matthew, Mark, and Luke's version, or is it John's version? Well, first of all, let's keep in mind what John, and the others too, we'll, we'll talk about John. John is not a historian journalist. He's a theologian evangelist. I'll say this about the cohort. It's not a historical report, it is a prophecy. What is John saying? He's saying, even the Roman Empire is going to fall before this one who is I am, who is the Son of God. Even the empires of this world are going to fall before him. The difference is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke lean toward in the hypostatic union, to use that theological term, they lean toward the human will and the human nature. We see the human side of Jesus in Gethsemane in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, throughout his gospel, but especially in Gethsemane, leans into the divine side. And we see the one who is true God of true God. And this raises an interesting question. Could Jesus have failed in the garden? I mean, when he's saying, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. Could there have been a moment when Jesus says, no, I, no, my will be done. 
I'm not doing this. I'm going to fight. I'm going to flee, but I'm not doing this. Could that have happened? Could Jesus have failed in Gethsemane? And the answer is yes and no. Yes, subjectively. Yes, experientially. Jesus experienced that pressure as real pressure. But the answer is also no. And that's objectively and that's actually more truthfully. No. Jesus experienced the pressure of temptation as real or more real than any of us. Jesus experienced that. I mean, in fact, the writer of Hebrews will say, you've not resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin, but Jesus has. So the experience of temptation that Jesus endures in Gethsemane is very real. Jesus feels the pressure. He feels it. But ultimately, the truth is, what James tells us, that God does not tempt and God cannot be tempted by sin. God cannot be tempted by sin. I'll tell you you this way. The moment the word became flesh, the salvation of the world was guaranteed. The moment the logos of God took on humanity, humanity was going to be healed and saved. Now, it's going to have to play out. Everything that has to happen is going to happen, and it has to happen. But the moment Jesus takes the field, he's going to win the game. You put Jesus into the game, he's going to win the game. Why? He's very God of very God. So, I'm glad that in Jesus we have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. That's what what Hebrews tells us that. We have a sympathetic high priest. He understands what that pressure's like. He understands what it is like to struggle against sin. We have a sympathetic high priest who was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. So I'm glad that we have a sympathetic high priest, but I'm even more glad that in Jesus, I have a God who cannot fail. Who cannot fail. A God who guarantees my salvation. I don't have to save myself. Jesus saved me. And he does. And he doesn't fail. Because he can't fail. Because he's very God of very God. Now, Just before Jesus goes to Gethsemane in John's gospel, he prays his high priestly prayer in John 17. I want to look at that just for a moment. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Do you see that? The father has given Jesus authority over all people so that he can give all people eternal life. And then Jesus says... John 6, 
the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus is God, man. True God of true God. In human flesh and blood. And he gives his flesh for the life of the world. And in the mystery of the sacrament of communion, we eat the flesh of Jesus and drink the blood of Jesus. This is divine flesh. This is divine blood. And what does it convey? It conveys eternal life. Jesus says, eat this, drink this. And you will have life, eternal life. Death will not be able to destroy you. Amen and amen. Stand up with me. Let's come to this table. The table of eternal life. The table where Jesus will give us. I'm telling you, you eat the flesh of Jesus, drink the blood of Jesus, you will have eternal life. It's a gift. You, you say, well, what, what do I have to do? You have to come. That's all you have to do. Yeah, but I'm not very good. Jesus is well aware of that. I mean, if, if Peter is better than Judas, it's only in that he didn't hang himself. Just, just keep coming back. Just keep coming back. Jesus will take you and he'll heal you and he'll save you. And so let's, let's first confess our Christian faith. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now join with me in confessing our sins. Most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done, and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins. And in humility, ask for mercy because Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them. That's why I can stand here and say, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. They're cast as far as the east is from the west. Though they're as scarlet, they're as white as snow. They're remembered no more. You're forgiven. Now, you're invited to come and have eternal life by participating in the body and blood of Christ. This is the table. 
not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him right here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.